Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. Hello, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Rebecca Larson, and since 2017, I've been exploring and sharing with you the stories of those who lived in 16th century England. Today's episode is another exciting one because I welcome back one of my favorites, historian and author Tracy Borman. I talk to her about her newest book, and then we talk about the reign of James I of England. Then, after that, author Adrienne Dillard is back for our Ask the Expert segment, where she answers your questions about Jane Boleyn. And lastly, I tell you all about Lady Anne Clifford. TudorCon was this past weekend, and it was so much fun. I'm sorry if you missed out on it. Due to the plague, this year's event had to be moved to a virtual setting for everyone's safety, but it was still a blast to hear from some great speakers and interact with attendees. I'll have a link in the show notes for more information on the next TudorCon events. If you're listening to this right now, it's because of the support of my amazing patrons. And since the last episode, I welcome two more generous people to that list. Alyssa C. and Jenny G. Thank you so much. In addition to Alyssa and Jenny, I want to thank all of my existing patrons, as well as those who have been patrons in the past. Thank you, thank you. Now, patrons this month are eligible to win a hard copy of Alison Weir's fifth book in her Six Tutor Queen series called Catherine Howard, The Scandalous Queen. Now, be sure to comment on the Patreon post to let me know that you want in on this. Also, thanks to the amazingly talented Janet Wortman, we will be giving away Kindle versions of her books, Jane the Queen and Path to Somerset, to every single patron. If you've never read these books, you won't be disappointed, I promise. And lastly, did you know that I have a new Tudor merch shop? You can find a link to the store in the show notes where you'll see fun Tudor designs on face masks, sweatshirts, t-shirts, totes, mugs, and more. You can also find it under shop in the menu on tutorsdynasty.com. My next episode is number 100, so be ready for something big and different to celebrate the milestone. Now, without further ado, Tracy Borman. Tracy, welcome back to the show. I'm really happy to be chatting to you again. I remember having such a great discussion about history last time. So, um, yeah, time has flown since then. Well, you know, I'm obviously, I'm a super fan. I love everything you do. So if this is all you can handle for me, we can be done. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very pleased to hear it. I mean, it's just, it's been a kind of dreary old day in London. And so this is kind of the highlight for me. So thank you for having me back. 
Well, I invited you here today because of the release of your final installment in the Francis Georgie's series, which is coming in November. And I desperately want to talk to you about it. And you were kind enough to send me a copy of the book in advance. And I messaged you that I had really slowed down my reading to a crawl <laughs> because I didn't want the series to end. Oh, that's so nice to hear. You know, I kind of felt the same way writing it because I knew it was just going to be a trilogy and for me Frances the heroine kind of lives and breathes and um, I mean she was a real a real woman you know based on a real character but we know so little about her that much of it is is the figment of my imagination and yet it's as if she's kind of a friend of mine now and I I just didn't want to let that go. So, yeah, I did the same thing. I definitely slowed down. <laughs> well, for those who have been living under a rock and aren't familiar with your trilogy, how would you explain this trilogy to them? OK, so it's set um, uh, in this kind of really turbulent period. Um, for, uh, it begins right at the end of the Tudor period. So Elizabeth I, the last Tudor monarch, is on her deathbed. And it's all about the kind of transition to the new Stuart monarchy and and what people make of, of the new king, James I, who brings with him all these obsessions and in particular an obsession with witches and his desire to just wipe them off the face of the earth. He sees himself as this kind kind of witch hunter general and and it's a time of real fear and suspicion and and mixed in with James's obsession with witches is his persecution of Catholics and and so it kind of drives the Catholics underground um so it's a real kind of hotbed of of intrigue and and plots against the king and of course most famously the gunpowder plot of 1605 and that really is the focus of the first novel in the sequence um in which my heroine Frances, who, as I mentioned, is a real woman, um, the daughter of one of Elizabeth's favourite ladies-in-waiting, she gets embroiled in all of these plots because she has particular reason to absolutely despise the king. Um, and so it follows her story all the way through the three novels, which encompass the whole of the reign of James I. And to say there was no shortage of material for me would be an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the... You just mentioned um, Frances's mother and her yeah. being a lady of Queen Elizabeth. Now, I just, you know, whenever I read historical fiction, it always want I get in the, the mode to want to research and to learn more. And with this book, I tried really hard not to because I wanted to just enjoy the story. But yeah. I just quick before I called you just did a quick preliminary search on her mother. And I discovered mm. that she was married to William Parr. Yes, absolutely. I, I didn't put two and two together that that's how she became a marchioness. Aha, uh -huh, indeed. That was it was all thanks to her first marriage, which didn't actually last that long because he was much older than her and, and died pretty soon after the marriage, but it's thanks to, to him that she was the marchioness and one of the highest ranking ladies in, in the kingdom, really. But then she married for love. She married way beneath her, as Elizabeth I saw it. She married um, uh, Thomas Gorges, uh, who was um, a, a sort of fairly low ranking gentleman in Elizabeth's household. Um, 
But um, Elizabeth, although she was furious, she kind of forgave Helena because she really loved Helena so much. Um, and she gave them um, lots of money, enabling them to, to build Longford Castle, which was their kind of country estate and where much of the action, so to speak, in my trilogy takes place. It, re- it still exists. It's this beautiful Elizabethan house close to Salisbury in Wiltshire in kind of um, southwest England. And it's it was just sublime. So I was able to really let my imagination run riot when imagining uh, my heroine growing up in these beautiful surrounds. You know, the last time I had you on, it was almost exactly a year ago. Was it? Yeah. And and (laughs) it was shortly after, I think, the release of The Devil's Slave. Yeah. And when I spoke to you that time, I really marveled at your knowledge of the herbal medicine. Was there anything in this installment that you had to put a lot of research in prior to writing? Yeah, th- that's a great question. I certainly had to continue with the um, the kind of whole um, herbal uh, knowledge because that's something that Frances develops herself um, throughout all three of the novels. And so, you know, I had to kind of stay on my game with with that one um but i think the most research by far for the fallen angel went into the the villain uh the duke of buckingham um who was george villiers he was a great favorite probably the greatest favorite of king james the first rumors of a, a kind of homosexual relationship between them that were pretty well founded rumors i have to say but honestly with Buckingham, it's a case of you couldn't make it up. I mean, he was this archetypal villain, you know, dastardly deeds. You you actually can't believe some of the things he got up to. And I remember I'd written a scene um, that was particularly kind of outrageous. Um, and my editor kind of, when, it, when the book came back for editing with his comments on, he said, oh, no, I think you've gone a bit too far here. And it's like, no, that's real. <laughs> that, that actually <laughs> happened. You know, I didn't make that bit up. Um, so he was, oh, an absolute gift for a novelist because goodness me, you kind of took, a, took about a real kind of pantomime villain. Uh, you know, he he was a black hearted uh, kind of villain and really ruthless destroyed anyone who stood in his path. And actually there are rumors that he even destroyed the King himself, that he, he plotted to poison the King. So you can imagine, I won't give away too many spoilers, but suffice it to say my research on Buckingham really paid off in terms of the storylines. You always have to have that villain in each story, don't you? He's the perfect villain. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, so for each of the novels, uh, I guess I have a kind of villain front and centre. So the first novel, it was Robert Cecil, the chief minister, really, of James I. Second novel, it's James's eldest son and heir, Prince Henry, who I kind of think was a nasty piece of work. And then we have the greatest of all three villains, uh, the Duke of Buckingham. And so it was kind of nice to, well, if nice is the word, but to kind of reach this crescendo of evil, if you like, in the in the trilogy with with the worst villain of all, um, or the best if you're judging him, depending how you're judging him. But Buckingham really was shocking. Um and I wove as many of the details of his his real life into the narrative. And I do that generally because I think you know, if you're a historian and you're writing novels, you do have a bit of a responsibility to to kind of stay as close to the known facts as possible, even in fiction. Um, 
or perhaps especially in fiction, because, you know, I, and I'm always very careful and I hope rigorous about providing an author's note to say, you know, how much was true, where I kind of had to weave in uh, things from my own imagination. Uh, that's always what I look for in a novel, a historical novel anyway. I am always amazed, Tracy, at the character development in your books. And yeah. I think it was The Devil's Slave when you first introduced um, Sir Walter Raleigh. Yes. Oh. And then you continued on with his story, which I was so excited about in The Fallen Angel. Now, his story is quite fantastic. So for those who are less familiar with him, can you explain maybe his position in the story and yeah. maybe what history was like at the time? Absolutely. So Walter Raleigh is a fantastic character. Um, and I really wanted to make him a key character in the in the novel. Actually, you know, he appears in particularly the second novel, um, but also the third. Um, so he was a great adventurer under Elizabeth I. He was one of her greatest favourites. He was always going on these sort of overseas voyages, um, discovering new lands. Frankly, though, he was a bit of a pirate. He kind of raided Spanish gold ships and brought back all the bullion to his queen. And that's part of the reason she loved him so much. But for some reason, James I hated Raleigh on sight. He could not bear Raleigh. And he had him imprisoned almost as his first act as king. He had Raleigh imprisoned on really trumped up charges. Um, he believed Raleigh to have been involved in a plot against his life. We don't know if Raleigh was or not, but I certainly played with that in the narrative. And Raleigh was sent to the Tower of London and actually became the longest serving prisoner in the whole thousand year tower history so he was in the tower for 18 years um he was released uh in 1616 um so uh to lead an expedition to find el dorado the fabled city of gold so really james got greedy he knew that raleigh was this great adventurer this great kind of um navigator and sailor and he thought if he can if anyone can find el dorado it's him so he released him but of course raleigh didn't find it because it was it didn't exist it was a fabled city of gold and so james punished him in the most severe way possible um so two years later he had raleigh finally executed i mean people thought he would die in prison it had been that long but uh james you know he never forgave raleigh and uh he, it kind of ignited his fury against him when he failed to find the city of gold that he promised um and he had him put to death but he there was a huge backlash against james for it because people adored raleigh he was one of those kind of really charismatic elizabethans and even there's a wonderful kind of description of his execution that i drew heavily on for the novel and you know even to the end he's a showman um, and he, just one of the most fascinating, one of my favorite characters to develop. So I'm really pleased you you picked him out. He was one of my favorite characters. So I guess in that way, I guess I could tell that he was one of yours as well. Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah. Cause <laughs> I, I kind of developed this real affection for him and I knew him kind of anyway through my work for historic royal palaces because um one of the the palaces we look after is of course the tower of london and so he's a very prominent figure in the tower's history and i just i thought he he's kind of just one of those lovable rogues um and i really wanted to kind of give him uh, a key role in this and and so he is um he's almost an anti-hero he's not he's definitely not whiter than white but um you know, you know, he kind of draws my heroine into all sorts of trouble. But 
you know, she forgives him for it. And hopefully the reader will forgive him for it as well. Well, and then you also brought in Francis Bacon this time. Can you explain what your idea was behind bringing him into the story? Yeah, he's too good not to, frankly. Um, Francis Bacon was this great intellectual, the greatest kind of philosopher, um, scientist, writer of the day, a real polymath. He was so good at so many things. Um, and and he kind of been on the periphery of my vision, so to speak, for the first two books. But I thought, no, that now's the time to draw him in because uh, he was quite in a close associate to Buckingham. So at first, I actually he, he's a character who for me changed a lot because I started out thinking I was going to make him a villain, a kind of sidekick to Buckingham. But he, the more I found out about him, the more I thought, no, 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 I, I can't present him in this way because there's just too much to like about Bacon. He was such a gifted man. And he was also very, very knowledgeable about plants and herbs. And I thought, wow, that is the common ground between him and my heroine. Um, and so they become really close associates, really close friends. Um, and he's one of her most trusted confidants. But he's just a great character because apart from his intellectual capacity, um, he, he comes across to me as quite effeminate. Uh, he loved, he was very interested in clothes. Uh, he was dressed very finely. Uh, he was married, but there were rumours about his sexuality. You know, he never had children. His wife was much, much younger than him. Um, I think she was about 11 when when the marriage was first spoken of and he was much older. So it was almost like a kind of trophy bride and they didn't really spend much time together. Um, uh, so so Bacon, I really had some fun with um, and and he was one of those characters I ended up really feeling sorry for as well when you when you know again no spoilers but when you look at kind of how it all unravels for him he was riding high and then it all goes horribly wrong for him uh in his career and and i have kind of francis bound up in that uh really so yeah he was he was another great character you know another thing i'm so <laughs> i feel like all i'm doing is gushing over you and your book but <laughs> oh please Ed, carry on <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I really loved is that we got to see more of Queen Anne. I really, I loved her character. She was always scheming for the Catholic faith. Uh, is there any evidence that she was actually working against her husband? Yes, there is. And um, uh, so Queen Anne had more than tenuous links with the catholic community like she she was getting presents from the pope himself you know this is this is serious business and when you trace her um the the kind of contacts that she had through her ladies in waiting she tended to appoint ladies to serve her who had a background in roman catholicism who kind of stayed true to the the old faith as it was known and and then they had their own networks and so I really developed this idea um, in the trilogy and in the first book I mean I think I can reveal it now because it was published a while ago but um you know I actually have Queen Anne being one of the the, the main players in the gunpowder plot that she kind of put them up to it um, and uh, she certainly was involved in in quite a strong way. Um, so I, I kind of developed that idea. But that was definitely not sort of just a figment of my imagination. You know, she really did have very strong links. And it caused friction with James because James knew 
that she had this kind of these kind of Catholic leanings, and of course he was very uh, staunchly Protestant, even Puritan, and uh, and so he couldn't have this in his spouse, this kind of disobedience, um, and so it, it was yet another nail in the coffin of their marriage, which you know, soon fell apart once she'd fulfilled her function of, of filling the royal nursery but she's a character i really warmed to again and there's a lot more to her she's definitely not the best known queen uh in british history uh but she's one of those kind of dark horses i think she deserves uh, further investigation for sure Definitely. And I, I love, too, how this time we got to see more of Prince Charles, the new heir to the throne. Was it fun adding him into the mix? It really was. And I think I've added him, uh, and I hope, in, in quite a sympathetic way, because Charles is one of those, he gets a bad press um, because of what happened with the Civil War and it's seen as kind of largely his fault for being so arrogant and his treatment of Parliament. There was a lot more to him than that. Um, and um, I've actually been researching him very recently for my new non-fiction book um, on a, a history of the monarchy. And um, and I really did, a lot of what I found out with that corroborated the impression that I'd formed during my research for uh, the Fallen Angel. And so, you know, what I've done um, with Charles is to, I hope, introduce him in a sympathetic manner. And, you know, it's probably far too early to be saying this, but I kind of left the door open a little crack just in case, just in case there's a little sequel uh, to this <laughs> trilogy, because I had, you know, I just don't want to let it go. And I thought I'm just going to tee it up so that I've just left a few little threads and, and most of those threads center around Charles. And um, and I just think I would absolutely love to continue his story and, and indeed Francis's. I love that you did that. And it's funny because I think I picked up on that a little bit as I got yeah. towards the end of the story thinking, oh, I really hope she continues and maybe does another trilogy. Oh, good, good, good. <laughs> yeah, because I just, yeah, I really, I really want to i mean as i say i kind of miss francis now it was quite a wrench to to finally press send you know send off the the manuscript for the last time um i kind of i i'd love to write more fiction um I, i've got some ideas for uh a new novel um that i'm kind of developing at the moment i don't think i mean I, it's something that i i think and hope i'd love to come back to in, in maybe a few books time rather than make it my next novel. I think it needs a bit of breathing space, the trilogy. And then, and then who knows uh, what I need, frankly, is for somebody to turn the trilogy into a film or into a TV series. And then hopefully there'll be the kind of uh, wolf hall effect and people will just be desperate for a sequel. <laughs> right. That's so funny because <laughs> this is one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Now I'm just going to jump forward to it because if the powers that be do decide to turn this into a TV series or a movie, who would you want to play the main characters? Oh, God. So many potential characters, um, you know, villains and, and heroes. Um, so I don't know if the actress Gina McKee is, is well known kind of globally she's a she's a british actress and she's been in some some great dramas she's been in um films such as notting hill um and i've always imagined her as francis when i think about francis i think about gina mckee um other characters and potentially for more villainous characters much as i love ray fines i kind of see him as maybe robert cecil maybe 
Um, oh. As for the Duke of Buckingham, I mean, oh, it's really hard because there are, you know, he has to be somebody like incredibly good looking and magnetic and yet with a bit of an evil glint in their eye. So I would like to put that out to your to your listeners, your followers, actually. And, and I would love to hear suggestions because he's one. The kind of face remains blank in my mind when I think about who who could possibly play him. Um, so uh, let's let's have some suggestions through. I'd love that. Yeah, that's a great idea. I, you know, I just looked up um, the lady that you had mentioned. Oh, Gina Francis. McKee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. totally see it. I, that's uh, exactly. Really? Yeah, oh. that's how I vision her too. So that's perfect. Amazing. Fantastic. That's great. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about Francis a little bit more too, because obviously she is the star of your book. Mm-hmm. In in this last installment, we definitely see her family growing as well as yeah. her time at court. Was it that normal at the time for parents to spend a majority of their time at court while their children were at home with a caregiver? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, parenting was so different in the kind of upper parts of society and in Tudor and Stuart um, times. So um, basically, people took their cue from the royals themselves and a royal couple would send off their offspring to be raised separately from about the age of three months they pretty much didn't see their children except on kind of public occasions at court when they were wheeled out. Um, and the aristocracy, it was very similar. Um, it was it was safer in the country for their children to be raised away from plague-ridden London. You know, it's quite topical at the moment talking about London was constantly in lockdown and, you know, quarantine and all the rest of it because of the plague, because of the sweating sickness. Um, but so, so for safety reasons, children tended to be raised in country estates. But but also because parents who served at court, that was their primary function. It came ahead of their parental responsibilities. Serving the king or queen or both um, was top of the agenda. So there was no way that they'd be kind of taking lots of time off, if you like, to go back and spend with their offspring. Uh, it was it was quite rare for them to spend a great deal of time. Uh, perhaps it was when the plague was raging again and they would be escaping for their own health um, and and then they would see their children. But otherwise, children were just used to being much, much closer to those uh, attendants who were appointed to serve them. So nursemaids, governesses, you know, children had a real attachment to them far more than to their own parents. The one thing I really appreciated from your series in this development was the female characters. And you talked about the Lord um, Rutland's daughter, Kate. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Was she a real person? Yes, Kate really was. Um, She lived and breathed and we know quite a bit about her, actually. Um, She's a a really fascinating character. So she was an heiress because um, the Earl of Rutland had two sons as well by his second marriage. Kate was from his first. But the two sons died in mysterious circumstances. And I I will say no more about that because it features in the novel. (laughs) Um, So Kate was due to inherit the entire Rutland estate, which was one of the biggest in the country. Um, So, uh, but she comes across as actually quite meek and mild, um, quite submissive a character, quite naive as well. Um, and certainly far too naive to be able to chart uh, the dangerous course of a life at court. And that's where 
I have my heroine, Frances, kind of befriending her, almost taking on a, a kind of maternal role towards uh, Kate. And um, and yeah, and it was just nice to to develop a character who we do know more about, certainly than than Frances. And we know descriptions of her. There are paintings that still exist of, of uh, Kate. Uh, Manners was her maiden name. Um, and we know she was actually quite plain. But because she was one of the richest heiresses in the country, she had all sorts of suitors swarming around her, uh, including Buckingham, uh, the villain. So, um, yeah, she becomes great friends with Francis during the novel. Uh, but that friendship is is soon thrown into jeopardy thanks to Buckingham's uh, kind of grasping interest in, in poor old Kate. I want everybody to read this so we can talk openly about it. <laughs> yes, I know. I know we need to come back in, a, in a, like where, however long it takes, a week after publication and then have a completely, you know, uh, open discussion. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's so, and, and once you read this book and read this series, you'll understand completely. There was another um, female character who you brought back in this book, who was a friend of Francis's that I'm so happy you did. James's daughter, Elizabeth, the Queen of Bohemia. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I love Elizabeth. I mean, she's kind of something of a precocious, a bit indulged uh, princess uh, in, the, in the first novel. Um, and and that's the theme I develop in the second, The Devil's Slave. But yeah, and then you know, the devil's slave, she, she marries and kind of disappears off into the sunset with, um, with Frederick, um, you know, and, and goes to far off flung lands. And you think Francis is never going to see her again, but she's such a great character. I couldn't resist bringing her back. And at, you know, a really key moment, just when things are going horribly wrong, um, I kind of imagine, well, I felt like, like cheering myself, but I imagine and I hope readers sort of saying, oh, thank God, you know, something, somebody's come to save the day uh, and it's uh, and it's Elizabeth. Um, so it was nice to to kind of imagine her as uh, as an adult. Um, she was still quite young when she married and left England. And then she comes back and she's already, you know, the mother of several children. And so she's really matured. And so it was nice to revisit her, give her character, you know, even more depth uh, and, and maturity than than when we last saw her in book two. Yeah, when her character showed up in the story, I remember I got this smirk on my face, like, watch out, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly you think you've won but no you've got a real battle on your hands now because <laughs> we know when it comes to Frances she always finds a way to get involved in things that most people would run from because I'm I'm reading the book and I'm constantly going, oh no Frances don't do it. just be happy with what you yeah. have yeah stop it just just yeah don't go for it and uh, stop taking the braver course of action just just be you know quiet and retired and live out a happy happy life but there's a definitely a feeling with Francis, I think, in all three books of the the net closing in. You know, she can't deny who she is. She's a healer at a time when that spells witchcraft. She's a closet Catholic and doesn't really want to deny her faith for many reasons, including family loyalty. Um, and, and she's also, in particularly in, in the final book, acting out of love um, and, and trying to protect those she loves most. Um, and so it's this sense of being kind of, sucked back in she i think she wants to live a quiet life but um there are too many forces pulling her in the opposite direction so there's never much let up really is there for poor old francis you know it's like oh god i thought things were going right and now 
you know, she's, she's drawn back into peril. What is it that you'd like people to take away from this series? Oh, so that's a brilliant question. I think I would love to have shed a bit more light on the early Stuart period. I mean, I myself am guilty of obsessing with the Tudors. <laughs> I love the Tudors, um, and but but it's well-trodden ground, and we do talk about the Tudors a lot. The Stuarts are no less fascinating. It's kind of a darker period. Um, it's a real melting pot in, in our history with lots of different things going on in religion, in society. Um, and, and it feels like a very turbulent time and quite a relatable time in, in many respects. So I think it, if it sheds new light on the Stuarts, but also, as you pointed out, I, I do like writing about women. And, and I think women's history is st there's still so much uh, incredible material to uncover. And even though we don't know much about the real Francis Gorgies, who I, who I based my heroine on, um, you know, just bringing to light lesser known characters like that, um, I hope will allow scope and, and spark interest to find out about many other formerly unknown women uh, in the royal court. Uh, so that's my ambition. But I guess the overarching ambition is just to have given people a damn good story. <laughs> well, you definitely did that. And <laughs> can you let everybody know um, when they can expect to see your books on the shelf? Yes. Yeah, so um, for the first time, I think ever, um, I'm very pleased to say that the UK and the US publication date has coincided, um, which is November. Um, so now it's the 5th of November in the UK. Um, I should have checked actually exactly when it is in the US, but I'm, you know, it's within days um, of each other. So it's early November. Um, great date for publication because of course it's the anniversary of the gunpowder plot so uh, I don't think that was quite accidental on on Hodder's parts um, and it certainly makes it a very easy date to remember. Brilliant absolutely brilliant well now the last time you were here um, I had a different fun little game at the end that we did but this year I've created a new one. Good and Excellent. this one <laughs> this one is called if I made you choose and what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you two names and I want you to choose between them without explanation. Okay. All right. Are you ready to play If I Made You Choose? I am ready as I'll ever be. Okay. Elizabeth the first or James the first? Elizabeth first. Now the next one, I'm pretty sure I know your answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway. <laughs> Wolsey or Cromwell? Cromwell. Now, the last time you were on, I asked you who your favorite of Henry VIII's wives were. So now I want to ask you, Anne of Denmark or Anne of Cleves? <gasps> That's so hard. Oh, God. I think it's going to be Anne of Cleves. And now my favorite, Edward Seymour or Thomas Seymour? Oh, it would have to be Thomas Seymour. Now, the reason I say that, and it's a bit kind of counterintuitive because he's a bit of a rogue and a bit of a villain, whereas Edward Seymour is a sensible one and he was the clever politician and all the rest of it. Um, but Thomas Seymour, he's just that kind of bad boy that we all love to uh, love to love. And certainly Catherine Parr loved to love him. And I just find him quite... Uh, irresistible as a subject. I think, you know, he must have had such charisma 
to attract the likes of Catherine Parr, a very intelligent woman, but also, frankly, of Elizabeth, uh, whatever the nature of that relationship was. Um, so I think, you know, he's the bad boy of Tudor history, but goodness me, he makes a good story. Doesn't he? And you've made me very happy with your choice. Oh, good. <laughs> Tracy, thank you so much for being on the show with me again today. Uh, it's been such a pleasure. It just flies by when we're chatting. And, mm. you know, I really, really look forward to hopefully chatting again, um, maybe even less than a year's time. That'd be great. <laughs> I'll make that happen. Brilliant. Thank, thank you. And now, Ask the Expert. Our guest on today's Ask the Expert is author Adrian Dillard. Adrian, you've published two books so far, one on Catherine Carey called Corrado and one on Jane Boleyn called The Raven's Widow. So it's Jane Boleyn that we're going to ask you some questions about today. So are you ready? I am ready. Perfect. So Caroline from New Zealand and Elizabeth Figler on Facebook both had a similar question. They want to know, was Jane ever pregnant? Is there any record of her having a confirmed pregnancy or do we know if she had miscarriages? What can you tell us about that? There are no records of her having been pregnant, but that's really not out of the ordinary because, you know, even though she was married to a member of the peerage, generally, you know, those, those, um, pregnancies weren't recorded. It was really only the royal pregnancies unless there was, you know, maybe a family Bible or something along those lines. Like a great example was, um, Catherine and Francis Knowles, he had a book where he recorded births of their children, the dates of birth, and some even like the time of birth. Um, but, but kind of as a rule, generally the pregnancies were not recorded. Um, and it actually, it didn't even become law until um, Queen Elizabeth came to the throne. So there aren't any records of it, but, you know, George and Jane were living together as husband and wife, you know, for quite a long period of time. And so I think, you know, to say that there never was a pregnancy or miscarriage is just as equally likely as to say that there was. So it's not recorded, but I think it's highly probable that she did have, you know, at least one pregnancy and whether there was a baby that was still born or there was a miscarriage, there could possibly have been. Because one of the most common things that people say about her relationship um, with George Boleyn is that they weren't in love or that it was a horrible relationship. And that's something that you kind of debunked a little bit in your book too. Well, I think if we look at, you know, couples today, there are many couples that struggle with infertility or choose not to have children for whatever reason, don't have any kids, you know, and, and we don't automatically assume that, they didn't love each other, you know? So I think 
just back then, just as today, you know, there is a possibility that they could have been, um, you know, infertility or anything along those lines. And then you also have to remember that, you know, the, the Tudors went by a very strict religious calendar. And so there were times during the year where they weren't allowed to have, you know, sexual relations. And so, of course, George was often, you know, he was on missions for the king and for his sister during the time of the divorce. And afterward, you know, he spent a lot of time in France. He was always on the road or he was, you know, serving the king, you know. And so when you think about it, you, you have to look at the odds of how often were they able to come together during, you know, that just happened to be on a day where they could have intercourse, you know, and so it's have to like fall on just the right ovulation day and just the right, you know, and so they kind of were at a disadvantage and, um, you know, perhaps if George hadn't been so busy doing stuff for the king and for his sister, you know, there may have been, you know, there's a possibility that she never did get pregnant just because things never quite aligned perfectly for anybody who has struggled with infertility. I think that they, you know, could recognize the struggle because you have to, everything just kind of has to align for, for that to happen. And so I think there's also a very good possibility of that. But with all the other circumstantial evidence that shows, you know, what type of relationship they had and, you know, how she mourned him after his death. And, you know, she was one of the only people to send him a message when he was in the tower. You know, I think to say that they had a poor relationship just because there were no children of the marriage is is kind of. I mean, overstretching it (laughs) and unfair. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because we wouldn't say that about a couple nowadays, you know, and there are lots of people who struggle with infertility. We don't just automatically assume like, oh, well, they must hate each other. And that's why there's no child. (laughs) You know, it's that's we just don't do that. So I'm not quite sure why that's like the first thing people go to (laughs) with George and Jane. But but yeah, I, I think it's a little far fetched. Well, now I have an, another question. This one was from an Instagram user whose name I couldn't quite figure out, but I'm just going to ask you the questions anyway. <laughs> okay. The first one was, how do you think Henry VIII felt about Jane, who was a living reminder of his marriage to Anne Boleyn and a woman who always wore black clothes of mourning for her husband that Henry had killed? I think we know very well what Henry thought of Jane purely by the fact that, um, you know, when Catherine Howard was, uh, you know, when her downfall occurred. Now, we have to remember that, you know, when when Anne's downfall happened, none of her ladies went with her. 
it was just Anne. But with Catherine, what was going on sort of seemed to be a bit of an open secret in in the Queen's household. You know, so so by rights, if Jane was going to go down, some of the other maids probably should have as well. Um, not that I think any of them should have. But, you know, if Jane was guilty, then certainly the rest of them were just as guilty. And the fact that Jane was the only one that went down with Catherine and when she was arrested and put in the tower, she had a moment of madness. Now, I personally believe that she suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder from the downfall of her husband and her the Boleyn family. Um, so, you know, I am of the opinion that it was a true and legitimate breakdown Um you know, but at the time, Tudor law said that a person who was insane or suffering from insanity could not be executed. If they were not in their right mind, they could not be executed. And, you know, Henry had the law changed. He specifically had the law changed to make sure that Jane was executed. And so I think that, you know, having her so sort of blatantly, you know, mourning her husband and truthfully, it's it's sort of strange that she was the only one who didn't fall with the rest of the Boleyn family. But I chalk a lot of that up to, uh, you know, her father's relationship with Cromwell. I think that. Her father probably spoke up for her at the time and, you know, for whatever reason, because of the closeness that Lord Morley had with Cromwell and with Henry, you know, that was part of the reason why Jane, I think, was not you know, taken down with the rest of the family. But I often have wondered if, if Henry didn't regret that specifically after how, you know, obvious she was in her mourning. And I think the opportunity came around and he took it. Do we have any idea if um, Jane Boleyn had any relationship with Mary Boleyn? You know, we really don't. Um, you know, they obviously would have had some interaction together. They were in the Chateau Vert pageant together. They went to, to Calais together several times. They both served in Anne's household. You know, there isn't any re record of them not getting along. So I think it's safe to assume that they probably had you know, a, a decent relationship. They may not have been the best of friends, but I don't think that they were enemies. But then in 1534, Mary, of course, came home pregnant and was, was banished from court. So I think at that time, we don't really know where Mary went. And, you know, shortly after that, in 1535, then Jane herself was banished for um, picking a quarrel with another lady on Anne's behalf. So they would not 
have, you know, after 1534, I don't think they would have ever ran into each other because, of course, you know, Mary never came back to court. So they may have had a short-lived sort of genial relationship, but they probably weren't very close. And my last question for you is from this really cool lady called Rebecca. (laughs) I think I know her. (laughs) I'm such a nerd. It was so long ago that I read The Raven's Widow. Can you remind me if um, Jean had any siblings? So she did. She had an elder brother, Henry, who died before their father. So his son became the next Lord Morley. Um, and that was uh, Sir Henry. And he was actually knighted at Anne Boleyn's coronation. And then she had two younger sisters. There was Margaret, who married um She married Sir John Shelton, whose mother was caretaker to Princess Elizabeth and um, Mary Tudor. She had a sister, Elizabeth, who most likely died, you know, either as a baby or as a child. There really isn't much other record of her. And then she had a brother, Francis, who seems to have died young, but he was old enough in like 1521 1522 kind of around that time he's listed as um on a grant of property to lord morley and to him they're both listed on there so he would have been you know old enough and was still alive in 1520, the early 1520s, to have received some land. But then there isn't really any other record of him after that. So either he just kind of faded into obscurity um, or he passed away relatively young. Well, thank you so much for answering all the listener questions today, Adrian. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, you can find Adrian's books on Amazon, but I'll also include links to her books uh, in the show notes. And now, a brief history. Buried in her family's vault at St. Lawrence Church in Appleby Castle, Lady Anne Clifford's tomb displays no image but rather exhibits 24 shields intended to convey her lineage and pride with which she felt for her family's origins. Clifford's entire adult life was dedicated to reclaiming the lands and castles that were rightfully hers, having been passed on from generation to generation, dating back to the 14th century. Lady Anne Clifford was born on the 30th of January, 1590, to Naval Admiral George Clifford, 3rd Earl of Cumberland, and his wife, Margaret Russell. Both parents were active at the court of Elizabeth I, Margaret having been a maid to the Queen and the sister-in-law of Ambrose Dudley, the brother of Queen Elizabeth's favorite, Robert Dudley, and George Clifford, a highly respected jouster and courtier as well. George Clifford's family estates in northern England were quite spectacular and included the castles of Bruff, Broome, Appleby, Pendragon, and Skipton. When George died in 1605, rather than leaving his properties to his own daughter Anne, he left them to his brother Francis and his heirs, namely his son Henry, which breached a centuries-old entail that should have secured the lands and castles to his own eldest heir whether they be male or female. 
Since Anne's two brothers both died in childhood, these castles should have, by law, been hers. She was instead given £15,000 as compensation. As her guardian, Anne's mother Margaret was her biggest champion and supporter, providing her with the necessary education as would suit her standing, and in 1606, initiating claims on her behalf to the titles and estates. Unfortunately, this amounted to nothing, as the courts refused her from the beginning. Margaret continued to contest the rulings as best as she could until her death in 1616. Anne began to research and compile evidence to be able to prove her position as rightful heir of her family's lands, and ultimately assembled three volumes of material known as the Great Books of Record that continue to be the main source of history of the Clifford family. In 1607, her research did prove Earl Francis's case to be invalid, and the Skipton estate was declared rightfully hers. However, Francis would remain as obstinate as ever and would never give up. On the 25th of February, 1609, Lady Anne married, quote, notorious wastrel and spendthrift, unquote, Richard Sackville, third Earl of Dorset. As her husband, Sackville took charge of her lawsuits and tried persistently to get her to give up her rights to family lands in exchange for a cash payoff. He spent excessively on clothes, mistresses, and gambling, and wanted the cash for himself and his own vain pleasures. In 1615, the Court of Common Pleas declared that Sackville and Anne could choose between some of the estates, but Anne was determined. She wanted them all. At this point, even King James sided with Sackville to get her to give up the fight, but Anne persisted nonetheless. Her husband had threatened to take their two daughters, Margaret and Isabella, away if she did not cease her cause, but to no avail. Anne Clifford would not rest until the lands were hers. It was during this time that Lady Anne kept a diary to record the developments of the legal matters she endured. She also included her marital struggles in her notes, which helped to paint a clearer picture of the repeated infidelity and extravagant spending by her husband. Her own contemporaries blamed Anne's unwavering and steadfast personality as a cause of her marital discord, but the match was not a happy one all the same. She often implied in her letters that Richard's younger brother, Edward Sackville, had much influence over her husband and was responsible for many of his misdeeds. Sackville died in 1624 as Edward succeeded to the Dorset title and took hold of the family estates. Richard had amassed sizable debts as a result of his spending, adding to the plight of Anne and their children. She left the Sackville home of Noel with her two daughters in tow and went back to the court of King James I. Over the course of the next six years, Anne was very popular at court as she continued in her efforts regarding her lands. In 1630, Lady Anne married widower Philip Herbert, 4th Earl of Pembroke. This ill-fated match was somewhat doomed from the start, as Herbert was quite literally the opposite of Anne in every way. Where she loved reading, Herbert hated books. Where she was a devout follower of the Church of England, Herbert was unreligious. She was a thoughtful, well-mannered individual, while he was tactless and vulgar. It's thought that Anne simply wanted to remarry to protect herself from her brother-in-law, Edward. 
1643, after several decades of battling her uncle and cousin to secure her lands and castles, Lady Anne's efforts would finally be coming to a close. Her uncle had been dead for nearly two years, and her cousin Henry died childless. However, Anne had to act cautiously so that she did not misuse this opportunity. A civil war was raging in England, and although her husband was a parliamentarian, she was of the unpopular royalist mentality. If she were to leave and head north to her castles, she would have no protection against her rivals without her husband's watchful eye. Her daughters were also of the marrying age, and she had to make sure that their futures were taken care of prior to taking her journey north to settle the affairs that had been in limbo for so many years. By this point, each of her castles were in complete states of disrepair and had been neglected for years. She was determined to get to each one and rebuild and restore so that they could not only become habitable again, but also stand with the beauty and splendor that they once had. In a 1646 letter to her cousin, John Lothar, Anne writes, We are in a hope of peace, and then the Scotch will march home into their own country, and the unruly English will also be gone. It was during this year that Anne commissioned a huge portrait of her family from a painter in London. This famous painting is known as The Great Picture and is now owned by Abbott Hall Art Gallery in Kendall. The portrait shows a teenaged Anne surrounded by books on the left, an elderly Anne, probably in her 50s, on the right, and in the middle picture illustrating Anne, her parents, and her two younger brothers who died in childhood. Six years after the death of her husband, Lady Anne was finally ready to head north and begin work on her deeply cherished family homes. She made her way from London to Baynard in July of 1649 and spent the rest of that summer traveling to and from each of her beloved castles. By 1651, she was ready to begin restorations, with the first step aiming to restore the Great Tower at Appleby. She laid the first stone with her own hands on the 21st of February of that year. As a gesture to show in what high regard he held her and to thank her for the service of her late husband, Oliver Cromwell offered to help Lady Anne with some of her tenants with whom she was having a dispute. She declined his offer and was told that he objected to her rebuilding of the castles. Anne's response to this was to say, Let him destroy them all if he will, but he shall surely find that as often as he destroys them, I will rebuild them while he leaves me a shilling in my pocket. Fortunately, Cromwell had great respect for the only woman to ever stand up to him, stating, quote, Let her build what she will. She shall not be hindered by me. In the latter part of her life, Lady Anne went on not only to rebuild all of her houses, but also build almshouses for the poor widows in Appleby and restore many churches in the north. As a passionate supporter of the Church of England, Anne appointed and paid chaplains for each residence and attended church services regularly. When unable to attend, she had her personal chaplains traveling in her progress, save the services in her own rooms. She had the Bible read to her daily, and she gave daily alms to the poor. Her diaries reflected her devotion as much as her entries recited scripture. In 1656, Anne erected a monument called Countess Pillar in her mother, Margaret Clifford's memory. This memorial marks the spot where Countess Margaret and Lady Anne last parted ways, where Broom Castle Drive meets the main road. 
Lady Anne's ruling passion was her attachment to her family and to the estates and titles which had belonged to it. She spent the last three decades of her life dedicated to restoring her homes and bringing pride back to the castles that were so neglected and even destroyed by years of war. She passed away on the 22nd of March, 1676, at the age of 86 in Broome Castle, in the same room in which her father was born. In a befitting sermon, Bishop Rainbow preached to the congregation, quote, every wise woman buildeth her house, and that she did. If you love to learn about Lady Anne Clifford and would like to know more, be sure to see the show notes for the images and links, including a free link to Anne's diary. And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. You can find my show notes from this episode and how to become a patron at tutorsdynastypodcast.com. Don't want to miss an episode? Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Patreon, Podbean, or anywhere you can find podcasts. Thanks for checking out the Tudors Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at tutorsdynasty.com. Follow Tudors Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.